The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. An expression in English of fighting fire with fire. A little strange topics for today, given it's raining. But fi- uh, fighting fire with fire, and my understanding of the history of the origins of this expression, it had to do with farmers in the eight, early 1800s in the prairies of central prairies in the United States when there were pra- prayer, 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 prairie fires. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> excuse me. They learned to um, set smaller fires in the, <clears throat> you know, in front of the approaching large prairie fire in order to protect themselves. And maybe, unfortunately, the expression eventually became also understood to fight violence with violence. That whatever whatever someone brings you, you bring the same. There is, a, I think, a marvelous story, perhaps a myth, a fable, uh, of the very first months of the Buddha's teaching of him fighting fire with fire. So I want to tell you the story. He was wandering around in northern India, and uh, he needed a place to stay for the night. And he came upon a, a large group, it says 500 um, people who, uh, ascetics, or spiritual practitioners, renunciants, who were living on the edge of a river, um, who were fire worshippers. And they had a firehouse, uh, kind of a, maybe like a place where they did the fire ceremonies and did their, their, you know, did their religious life. <clears throat> and uh, so he came upon them and he said to the leader of them that uh, would it be possible for me to spend the night in your firehouse? He needed a place to stay. And uh, <clears throat> the man said, oh yes, it would be, I'd be very happy for you to stay there. However, there's a, oh, a ferocious... Um, a large, powerful serpent, fire serpent, living in the house. And it, won't be dang- it, w- it would be dangerous for you <clears throat> to go and spend the night there. And then, but, oh no, I can be, I'll be fine. <clears throat> Could I please stay there? And uh, because it was so dangerous, that man thought it was so dangerous for the Buddha to do it, <clears throat> the Buddha had to ask three times. And in India, ancient India, if you ask three times, you usually don't say no the third time. <clears throat> So I said, okay. You so the Buddha went in and, spent, went in and explains that he went in and sat down and made himself a seat inside the firehouse, sat down cross-legged and established himself in an upright sitting posture <clears throat> and brought forth mindfulness. So he was going to, often the Buddha would sit and meditate through the night. That was his idea of a good night's sleep maybe. And um, <clears throat> so sure enough, this dragon came out the serpent came out and was, I guess, upset that someone was in the, his house. And so uh, he approached the Buddha and started um, shooting smoke at the Buddha. And the Buddha thought that was interesting. And he said, well, what if I uh, uh, match the smoke with smoke? And that infuriated the, the serpent. So then he started with... Um, you know, projecting flames, ferocious flames at the Buddha. And the Buddha thought, well, what if I match the, the fire 
with fire without hurting, without harming the serpent. And that's the magic thing, without harming the serpent. And then it says, and then um, with, filled with goodwill, filled with loving kindness, care for the serpent, the Buddha matched fire for fire. So he wasn't trying to harm the, harm the, um, the serpent, and, but he was, provi- he was matching fire with fire. And uh, this uh, and so people outside could see the flames and the smokes billowing out of this firehouse. So, oh no, the ascetic Gotama, the Buddha, <clears throat> certainly he's going to succumb. This would be his end. But in the morning, the Buddha came out uh, with um, the, now this big, terrible serpent um, in his begging bowl, curled up, and he handed it to the fire worshiper and said, "Here." <laughs> and uh, the Buddha was no less, you know, worse off than before he went in. So one of the things, the images of this that stands out for me is the Buddha sat in meditation first. So he was sitting, in, for the Buddha, in a strong posture, in an erect, upright, present posture, posture where you can be really present for something, for life, for yourself, whatever's going on without leaning in and without pulling back, without getting activated and without crumbling down, collapsing. This danger came at him and he kept his strong position, his balanced position. This, in a sense, a kind of neutral position, but also in a sense, a very strong position, a posture of strength but a, struck, a posture of strength which is unassertive. A power of strength which is not asserting power over anyone. Not being aggressive, just there, present. And when the serpent came and attacked him, the Buddha responded somehow in kind. But was it really with smoke? Was it really in flames? There is... Um, uh, Another teaching somewhere else where the Buddha is talking to a person who's a, a, a um, wood gatherer as, as a profession, gathering woods for fire. And uh, the Buddha, in the course of their conversation, says, um, says to him, I have given up the burning of wood. Uh, I burn the blaze of wisdom within. So he's lit in the fire. He, light, he doesn't light the fire of wood. He lights the fire within. And so the inner fire, light, or, but this idea of flame, of inner fire, is also a little bit of a, of a representation of some kind of strength and power. But it's inner. And so the serpent comes towards the Buddha, and the Buddha keeps sitting there and doesn't move but I imagine that he looks the serpent right in the eye, unflinchingly. And that's, you know, maybe this is a myth, but that's a powerful idea, that danger comes and you neither turn away, you don't turn the other cheek, but you also don't um, attack. It's not eye for an eye kind of thing. For the Buddha, it's the fire, I would suggest, the fire of loving-kindness. Is loving-kindness a match to the, 
the anger of this terrible serpent, apparently the Buddha thought it was, can loving kindness, something like kindness, be powerful and strong? Or how do we, how do we let our love have a strength and power to it that can meet the challenges of our life? That's kind of the question. Is it possible? And I think that often enough in our kind of Buddhist scene, where we emphasize a tremendous amount of you know, compassion and loving kindness and these things, um, sometimes it goes along with a kind of meekness, a kind of not, you know, not, you know, just kind of accommodating or accepting others and not try, trying very careful. The idea of not harming sometimes is interpreted um, make sure no one feels hurt. And that's a big difference between harming and people feeling hurt. Sometimes harm and hurt are two different things. If you tell me that, you know, that I'm a pretty lousy teacher because I'm wearing, I guess, a red shirt, I don't think you're harming, you're, you're, you're harming me to say that, but I might feel hurt if my identity is tied up with my shirt. So if that, if I make, so you have to kind of go along and help me with this, this thing, or you know, this distinction I'm making between hurt and harm. There is a distinction that is val- important here. So we have a tremendous emphasis on not harming, but even with that, we can't be responsible that some people would feel hurt when there's no assertion, no, no, nothing. You know, we're not trying to do anything. And sometimes simply being present in a strong way, some people feel intimidated by that. Sometimes uh, holding our ground is taken as being assertive. Sometimes not giving in and accepting what people are saying is seen as taken as an offense. And maybe all these things are true sometimes. But uh, I think think there's some kind of an under-shadow side of our Buddhist tradition that I've seen over the decades I've been in it, of people being a little bit uh, kind of ready to lower themselves, weaken themselves, or or, uh, diminish themselves in, uh, in order to make other people comfortable. There's a time for that, for sure. But the shadow side is that it's sometimes done too often, and so the flip side of that is often not learned in our tradition, I think. And I could be wrong, and you can correct me. But what's not really emphasized that often is the idea of become a strong person. Maybe even become a powerful person. But in what way? Strong and powerful in yourself for yourself, in a certain kind of way, over yourself. So I'll give you uh, some examples, or at least one, of uh, something that was very small at the time. I haven't thought about it for decades, but recently I've been thinking about it. I said, wow, that was a, this represents a real turning point for me in my Buddhist practice, that I did this. And, uh, and uh, how did I come ac- across this idea? I don't remember to do this, do this practice. And I kind of thought back at my early years, my first year when I was kind of a full-time Zen student. So um, I was living at uh, the San Francisco Zen Center. Uh, 
which is a, um, and they have a farm on Marin County called the Green Gulch Farm. So I was uh, working as a farmhand there and doing a lot of farm work. And one day with another person, I had to carry some very heavy equipment uh, from one side of the farm to the other, just the two of us. And it was kind of a long walk, and it was really hot, painful for my hands to hold this. It wasn't, I don't remember what it was like with my arms, but it really, really dug into my hands. And I said, okay, well, I, my, my attitude, oh, this is interesting. Let me see if I can manage this uh, without having any reactivity in my mind. Can my mind stay at ease while my hands were feeling this pain? And so, I don't know how well I did. I can't proudly say that I succeeded somehow. But what I succeeded to do was to, to maintain the practice of doing this, looking at it, looking at my reactivity, letting it go, trying to decouple the pain in my hand from the state of my mind. And this decoupling that I was trying to do there then represented a kind of a continued way in which I practiced where I tried to find, see my reactivity in my mind and see where I had choice not to give into it, not to pick it up, to leave it alone. And this, I think, is so where did I learn that? And I think I learned it by sitting in meditation. That as I sat in meditation, um, uh, there was first a physical stillness that was hard to learn to do. But I had to not give in to the impulse to move, move, to itch myself or to avoid discomfort. And that was a tough thing to learn, to not have the physical reactivity to it. But I learned to do that okay. But then the next stage was to, you know, what you're left with then is kind of like the mind. And I discovered how much my mind reacted. I discovered that uh, the reactivity of the mind often made other pain much worse physical pain, emotional pain, much worse. So I learned to watch my mind closely and see, okay, let go. Don't do that. Don't go along with that. Go back to the breath. Go back to here. And I was going back to some peaceful place. And so over, so, that, so I think that's where I started to learn this, what was going on in my mind, tracking my mind. So when I was carrying this heavy equipment across the farm, it had become now a reference point for not just in meditation, but in daily life as well. To track my mind, to see what my mind was doing, and to exercise some choice about what goes on in my mind. Some choice about what I pursue, how I practice with it, what I'm involved in. And in some sense, uh, I was cultivating a kind of self-control. A certain kind of agency, uh, strength, over my reactivity to not give in to it. My reactivity was strong in itself. Maybe that was the serpent. And I learned to not have the serpent have the upper hand. And so then, you know, I don't know if that was the first time I really started doing this in daily life with this heavy equipment, but it was, you know, represented a kind of direction that my, my practice went then, that the, really the track was going on in my mind. The next phase that happened, and after a few more years of Zen practice, was that um, I discovered that 
uh, as I had this little more control over my mind, which meant that not so much that I could then use it assertively or, you know, you know, make something happen in the world, that was a power over leaving the mind alone with not infusing the mind or having the mind caught up in reactivity. That's where the control was. And as I uh, I became less and less reactive in my mind, what became important was love. Love, compassion, care, tenderness. That's what kind of, there was space now for these other ways of being to, being to well up, a wellspring within of a lot of goodness that hadn't had space before because it was crowd, crowded out by my reactivity. It was crowded out by all the thoughts and stories and ideas and proliferations of imaginations that I had. And as those quieted down, there was space to feel and sense something deeper within. And it became a very special time at some point, or a choice I made at some point, where I realized that um, that the uh, uh, compassion, love, kindness was partly a choice, not to do it so much, but a choice to lose it. The choice to lose touch with it was a kind of a, a subconscious, unconscious choice that my mind would make if I gave in to my reactivity. If I got caught up in the, in the swirling thoughts and ideas and fantasies of my mind that closed that part of me out. And so at some point I kind of made a commitment to love, to compassion, not because I was going to like work hard now to be compassionate. That never was interesting for me. But rather, I was going to work hard at not covering it over, not, making, not, not having it have, be available for myself or to be flowing through. And so, uh, over, then to, over time, I learned this wonderful thing that has so many different uh, sides and flavors and qualities that uh, are really beautiful to have. But it could also be, be very strong. Love can be powerful, or maybe say it differently, love can be matched or be supported by or come along with a kind of inner strength that we learn to carry with us. An inner strength that is comparable in daily life to the Buddha statue here, the Buddha sitting in meditation practice, sitting upright, strong, neither assertive nor pulling back, neither, you know, attacking nor afraid, neither giving up nor requiring anyone else to give up but very present, looking people, looking everyone. He has a very soft gaze. Usually these statues of the Buddha in meditation, usually they always have him with his eyes half open. And one of the theological, Buddhological theories for that is that Buddha is always connected to the world, but with soft eyes, a soft gaze. 
can the strength of and presence of meeting challenges, angry people, can we have a, such strength that we can meet it with soft eyes? Can we meet anger, not with anger, but with love? So when the Buddha fought fire with fire, I would suggest that there was two different kinds of fire. Maybe the serpent was a fire of anger. For the Buddha, it was a fire of love. And the Buddha said that uh, hatred and anger is never overcome by hatred. It's always overcome by love. So can that be something strong? And I would emphatically say yes. But it's not a strength of reactivity. It's not a strength that is so much a doing, except it's a strength of getting out of the way. So a natural presence, our ability to really be present and stay for what's happening, um, has a chance to kind of flower here for us and be really present in a strong, full way. I had a neighbor once who uh, was really angry at some noise workers were making and were in the property and came over and yelled at me. Just came over and yelled at me. It was very angry, furious. It was completely, I think, unreasonable, the whole thing. Cause, but anyway, it was, I don't know exactly why. And so I stood there, just looking at him. I felt kind of uncomfortable, a little bit, a um, little bit afraid. So it wasn't like I was just kind of fearless. And, uh, but I st- stood there, just I didn't back away, I didn't attack, I just stood there and looked at him. And I did wonder, how long can someone have a monologue like this? <laughs> And then uh, when he finally stopped, I, I just looked at him in calmly and I said, you know, when you're talking, talking this way, uh, I feel afraid. I don't think I was expressing fear, but I just, it was kind of true, but it wasn't like a, I just looked at him and said, that's what's happening. And in a sense, that was my, my meeting fire with fire. I just said, this is what's happening. And um, he immediately calmed down. He immediately kind of apologized and left. And that's the last time that neighbor has yelled at me. And we're kind of friends now again. But, um, you know, so I think I wouldn't have been able to do that unless I'd learned to track my reactivity, to track my fear and how I relate to fear and how fear sometimes gets the upper hand and I believe it and I, you know, the usual kind of hindrances around fear might have come up. It might have been the fear of, you know, one hindrance is, is anger, you know, to blame him and want to attack. Another is to shut down. Another is to get all restless and not know what to do. It's all kinds of things can happen there. The reactivity part. But, uh, you know, by knowing and tracking my ability, how I'm reactive, I was able to have how I was be much more the realm of my choice. 
I'll just stay here and be here with it. I'm not going to give in to these habits. And then I was able to make a wiser choice. The one wiser choice was just stay watch. This was, I was pretty confident this was not a person who was going to be violent, even though the voice was strong. But also, um, so strength. Some of you know that Martin Luther King has a wonderful writing on, uh, in a book called um, The Strength to Love. How often do you associate love with strength? How often do you uh, bring forth something in the family of love, all the different qualities that we call the family of love? How, f- how often do you bring it forth in a way so it's present in a strong way? Not strong because it's infused with what we want, desire, which is often makes love complicated and which often gives love a lot of strength. It's like, you know, because we want something. But what is it, love, that is not entangled with desire? That is offered to the world without assertion, without need, without wanting something, without leaning forward, without pulling back, but allows us to be very present, upright, alert, available for the world and available for wisdom and care flowing up within us so that the wisest part of us can then decide to choose what to do. So lately I've been thinking of this as being a kind of strength, but also I'm thinking maybe to start using the expression self-control, which is kind of taboo in our Buddhist scene. First, because of the word self. (laughs) And second, because uh, there's a lot of teachings that don't try to control your experience, don't try to control your experience. And um, both these caveats, I think, are important. But sometimes uh, there is, a very important part of Buddhist practice is, in fact, being able to control yourself. Not controlling what happens, but controlling the reactivity with which you respond to what's happening. Including your reactivity to your reactivity. Some of your reactivity you can't, can't help doing, but then at some point we have some choice. Some choice, some point we take some control over the situation. Even if all it is, which is not a small thing, is I'm going to be mindful of this. I'm going to not shoot a second arrow. That's, that's taking control, that's taking agency, that's taking, uh, engaging in the practice. And the self part, you know, is self-control. It's a non-philosophical, non-metaphysical self. You know, it's like... If you say, I'm going, to, I'm going to go pee, that I is not the metaphysical problem. 
<laughs> There's no I in Buddhism. <laughs> I'm going to pee, go pee. No, you can't use that. Will you go do it for me then? <laughs> you know, so it's just kind of that kind of simple way. Who, who else is going to care for you? Take care of all the waste products in your mind. Don't expect that. Other people do it for you. So, um, so this wonderful little tale of the Buddha fighting fire with fire, which I interpret to be that he fought the fire of hatred with the fire of love. And what does it take for you to have that as a strength? So you can match whatever comes your way with something that's comparably powerful, something that's effective, something that matches what comes your way. The Buddha in his teachings put a very high value on this capacity to do this. Very high value to do this, no matter how difficult the challenges we have. And some of the stories, or the little teachings of how to do this are kind of outrageous. You know, the challenges that he describes that you should always have loving kindness. And um, and maybe it's religious hyperbole, you know, that he's talking about these examples, but it puts an emphasis, like, wow, it is possible to develop oneself. It is possible to grow something so that we don't become victims of what life brings, but we become, you know, the... The, um, I don't know, the first responder that's ready to meet any fire that comes our way with something that can put it out. So I hope that uh, gave you something to think about. And... uh, and reflect on, and maybe it's a wonderful, this idea of this Buddha in the firehouse house is, is kind of a symbolic kind of tale that maybe um, um, can be interpreted in other ways as well, as well, or kind of be applied or elaborated if you think about it. So maybe you'll do that. So, um, I thought that rather than taking questions today, maybe I'd like to suggest those of you who are willing to stay, that uh, you form little groups of maybe three and, uh, and have a little discussion about what this talk has evoked for you. And uh, we have about 15 minutes or 10 minutes, you know, that we, so we'll t- probably take maybe six, seven minutes for that and then we'll come back as a big group and then we can take some questions and hear a little bit more. And then we'll take a break, and then at 11 o'clock we'll have the community meeting. So if you don't mind, turn to someone near you and three or so people and introduce yourself. And, and, um, and if you're not interested in staying, then you, thank you for being here. <laughs>